Happy Sunday. Hallelujah. It's the fall. It's not technically the fall, but it's close enough that, uh, that I'm going to call it the fall. I, I love this time of year because it's a time of, of new routines, and so if you've been um, away for the summer because you do a different routine in the summer, we're glad to have you back. If you uh, are just new, then welcome. We hope that this uh, is a time that is meaningful for you. And, and this new routine thing, I was thinking about that a little bit, and there's new school years, which I always remember as a fun thing because I got at least one new outfit. I don't know if you were someone who got to shop uh, for one new outfit or maybe 17 new outfits, but I was just thinking fondly back uh, because the styles are back in um, of my hot pink high tops that had the tongues that stuck out over top of the acid wash jeans that'll date me and put me in a category. But I remember that great day of my first year where I was tall and slender and there was a chance at popularity because new routines give you new chances in life. And so I was thinking about other new things. We start new sports in the fall. Like I, I know I noticed some of you in your Vikings and Packers stuff, some of you are more hopeful than others, but a new football season starts. So I've already gotten the cue, um, Rob, don't go late because football season starts. And, you know, it's a new routine for church and it's a new routine for family. Sometimes it's a new routine in your budget and things like that. And so um, speaking of budget, we did this in August. We did a thing called the 10 by 20 challenge. We wanted to get our ministry center, this office and place that we can have a uh, location and a ministry presence all week. We had a financial push to raise $10,000 in 20 days. And as of Wednesday, we had around $8,000. And I am pleased to say that we surpassed that. We went $116 dollars over the $10,000, and today's day 20, and that's a really great thing, so thank you so much for your generosity. So, uh, there are other times, though, that routines are not so good. Like, um, routines can become ruts, and we, for, we can forget why we do what we do. And so if you've ever heard, let's just be really brutally honest, in your worship folder, you've got a blank sheet of paper. Uh, and so if you've got a pen, uh, I would love to hear uh, maybe good, bad, or otherwise, something that is true that's not too harmful, uh, why you go to church or why you've heard other people say they go to church, whatever's maybe funnier, um, and and why um, you may have told someone else why you go to church or why they should go to church. So if you're a kid, uh, you might remember back to, it, and kid can be just anyone who has a parent, uh, you might remember back to what your mom used to tell you or what your dad used to tell you. So I would love to know what your reason is. So if you would write that down for me, um, someone's going to be by in a moment to collect those. If you can't think of anything, don't worry, I'll tell you a story. And maybe what my story is not as good as your reason. So, so once upon a time, there was a young woman who had just gotten married. This beautiful couple got engaged, and their fall, they had a fall wedding. And, um, and so, the, the, I mean, madly in love, too. And, and this woman uh, 
wanted to prepare the most beautiful Thanksgiving dinner in the creation of the world. And so she had been working away in the kitchen and he wanted to help because they're so madly in love. And she's like, nope, this is my thing. I'm going to do this for you. I just really want to do this. And so she is working away in the kitchen and she's got the turkey and she's stuffing it full of the stuffing. And it just looks beautiful. It's basted. It's already the oven's been preset. And all of a sudden she starts cutting the end of the turkey off like two or three inches of the turkey. And this husband, in a moment of stupidity, like in their madly in love stage, says, what are you doing? And she, of course, is highly offended by this. So they get into their second fight. Their first one was, um, well, we don't have to go there. But their second fight. And uh, she, in a moment of defensiveness, just says, well, what are you, why, why are you criticizing my turkey? This is how I do turkey. This is how my mom taught me to do turkey. This is how you do it. Leave the kitchen. And so he leaves, and she, of course, calls her mother, who listens empathetically, who tries not to kick her husband under the bus, but does so a little bit, and, and says, well, honey, you're right, that is how you do turkey. And she says, well, mom, why? Silence on the other end of the phone, and mom says, I'll get back to you. So young woman hangs up, mom picks up the phone, calls her mother, grandma, she's still alive, really sharp lady, I mean, in a nursing home, but really sharp lady, and, uh, and she's like, mom, how are you? And she says, well, I'm fine, how are you? And she says, I'm good, but I got to ask you a question, because, uh, you know, my daughter got into this fight, oh, how is she, how is the wedding? Uh, you know, mom, uh, I, why do you cut the end of the turkey off? Because I just remember, like, that's how I've always done it, but I remember that's how you've always done it, and she she just sits and she thinks and she thinks and she's, what? Well, mom, I cut the last three inches of the turkey off. That's how you do it. That's how we do turkey. She's like, no, you foolish woman. She's like, mom, that's how I always watched you do it growing up. And she's like, I did that because my oven was too small and so it wouldn't fit. So I had to cut the end of the turkey off to stuff it in. You've been wasting all that turkey. And she's like, okay, bye. We, it's really important to know why we do what we do so routines don't become ruts. And so um, if I can have somebody grab, if you have a sheet of paper and you want to pass it to a, the middle of the row, we'll have somebody swing by. I'd love to know what some of your reasons were about why people go to church. Yes, here they come. I want to I hear some good stuff. I've actually heard somebody say, you know why I don't go? I'll tell you why I don't go, because it's the one day out of the week I get to sleep in. And uh, I've heard somebody else tell, well, I'll just wait. I hear lots of reasons why we don't go, which really wasn't the point. All right, let's see what we got. Hmm, 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 hmm. This is always a little scary. Not quite as scary as open mic time, though. All right, uh, we go to church because uh, it's what we've done since we were little. Uh, oh, that's really good. I should save that one. Uh, my parents say it's important, so that's why we go. Oh, someone who listens to their parents. That's awesome. Um, I love to connect with other people. That's why I go to church. Uh, it grounds me to remember that life isn't just about me. Ooh, that's good, too. I know. Um, to worship God. Love it. 
to worship God as a community and thank him for all he has done um, to connect with others. I go to church because it's a way that I can be connected to Jesus. I like to meet other people who are Christians. I lo- oh, I love my church. Uh, I go to church to see what the pastor's wearing. Oh, that's... <laughs> I go to church to see what the pastor's wife is wearing. Just kidding. No, because uh, I love to worship. I feel connected to the spirit when I'm there. Um, it's what we do on Sundays. That's what my mom says. It's just what we do. Uh, well, we can, we can just go on and on. Maybe we'll put some of those in the news and notes. Uh, I go to church because it helps me focus on the word of God and not on the world. And so it's important to see why we do what we do. Now, I I did hear one person say, uh, I think church is about being a good person. So what I'd like to know is if I'm already a good person, then why should I go to church? And... I had a really good conversation with my neighbor who talked to me about that. And, and what it means is, and what it says is, that church is about behavior. That it's about being a good person or doing the right things. And that's not what we see in Scripture as to why we gather together. And so as a church that's not even two years old, we wanted to just stop and think and ask the question of why. Why do we do what we do? And so here we see in Psalm 113 we actually see a couple of the reasons why we gather, why we do what we do. And in Psalm 113, it gives us some insight. It says this. I'm in verse 3. If you want to take notes in your Bible, you sure can. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. I don't know about your life, but as I started to reflect on life in the suburbs, I started to have my heart start pounding. And as I started thinking about the lives that some of us live, um, my heart started to pound even more. And so let me just think for a second with you about uh, Monday morning, because Monday morning's coming Sunday night. If we're lucky, we're going to get a little time with people we care about to kind of think about the week and plan for what's ahead. But then like 6 a.m. comes or 6.15 comes, we got to be out the door because, man, if we leave the house at 6.45, like traffic just is twice as long. And then we've got to figure out a new route. Plus we got to check like Intrix or Google Maps or wherever we're going to get our traffic report from so we can make sure that we make it through the city and we don't come to work all stressed out. And if our coffee spills all over us, then we got to keep from swearing because that's not going to help us start the week off really well. And so so then we get to work and then we have someone breathing down our neck and telling us good things. Or maybe we come into a workplace and we start gather together and we sing. We sing to start the week because that's what we do at church. So that's what we should do at our office. No, we don't do that. We like get down and we have to start on the computer. We got to check our 150 emails that came in over the weekend, 25 of which or 50 of which are spam. So we got to delete those. And then we've got an appointment. Then we've got to get try and grab lunch. But we forgot to bring lunch because we left it in the fridge. And so we got to run out to have lunch. And then 
we come back, we have a few more appointments, and then we finish the day. But, oh, wait, if we, if we have a family, then we've got to figure out who's going where to what sport and all these things on this mo- Monday night. And then we have, oh, we might even have a meeting on Tuesday night. We've got to do something, like, together as a family on Wednesday night. Oh, we can't because someone has gymnastics or somebody has football or somebody has. And then we make it to Friday, and we realize, Sweet, I have Saturday. Oh, wait, wait, no, we, have, we were going to do this thing. We've got to be with our in-laws, or we've got to be with our outlaws, or we've got to be with our family, or we've got to get this done. And then Sunday, oh, no, because Sunday we run into church, and we've got to get that in an hour so we can have this thing. And, and our life gets really fast and really, and so we, we collide into this space of squeeze and pull. And when we often do that, we come at it from this kind of consumer perspective. And so it's really subtle. It's like we run into caribou and then, oh, they got the, they got the order wrong. Or we run through the drive-thru and it's like, oh, man, I really asked for no onions on this and I got onions. Or, um, and then, is this the best deal? Can I shop here and can I check this? And it takes us from an active place and it moves us to a passive place. It takes us from being a part and just observing. And then like that can leak into our what we think about church. So when we go to church, when we bring this hectic lifestyle and first we got to run in and then we got to make sure it's okay and then we got, oh, did did I like the music or did I not like the music or did they do well, is the greeting or is the pastor making any sense? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And And this bumps into everything we do. And here we see in Psalm 113 such a different perspective of gathering. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Now and forever, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The church gathering is really about calling us out of this life of hecticness, out of this life that is focused on all these other little details, this life that's often just focused on ourself. And it calls us not just to pause and not just to sing, but to a life of praise. A life that is upward, that is God-focused. And we can't make you sing. And we can't make you pray. But it's not worship if we don't do that. We come together and we sing and we pray and we listen and we share because it is active. It brings us into this experience. And praise the Lord, literally, in the Hebrew, in the language it was written in, it means hallelujah, like short for Yahweh. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, the Lord. Hallelujah. And there's this cadence in this psalm of hallelujah, Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, Yahweh. You, his servants. Hallelujah, Yahweh. Praise the name of the Lord. What is this name? This is Yahweh. This is, this is a unique name of this God. This isn't just any God, because remember, he's writing in a time where everybody's got a God. The Greeks have gods, the Romans have God, the Egyptians have God, the Babylonians have God. Everybody's got gods. But he's saying, Yahweh, this God, the one true God, he is the God to be praised. He is the one that we come together to sing about. We praise God. This is one of the reasons, this is probably the first reason why we gather together. We praise God. Praise Him now and forever. Time. 
from the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun sets. This is about space. Every time, every space, in every way, and everywhere, we praise God. Isn't that, isn't that like a nice thought? It's a great thought. But we have days, right? We have days where, where we go, I don't want to do that. We don't feel like giving praise to God. My dog ran away when I was like 10 minutes away from leaving church today. And I'm like, oh! And it was the big dog that runs fast, not the little dog that I can catch because we needed two dogs because Michelle said, we have to have a house of peace and calmness and this dog will bring that. I'm like, liar! (laughs) Can you tell who's the calm one? I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to talk about being joyous and praising God and the dog ran away! I need to hear this this morning. And it's valid to come and say, you know, I don't feel like singing today. I don't feel like praising God. That's totally valid. But let's think about what we're saying when we say that. And I'll pick on myself at 8.58 when I took the collar off and... Ah! I don't want to praise God right now. Why? Because it was all about me and my situation and what I needed to do and how I had to do this and how I needed to get here and how that dog just messed up my schedule. Not what the psalmist says. Not at all. And so if this is a struggle for you, I would... And trust me, all fingers are pointing back at me right now. I would say, are you making it about you? If it's hard for you right now to praise God, have you made it about you? Praise the Lord, Yahweh. In every time and in any space, praise Yahweh. The one true God. There is no one like this God, the psalmist continues and says in verse 4, The Lord, this Yahweh God, is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? There is no one like this God. That's why we come together and praise him. We praise God for who he uniquely is. There is no one like this God. Now, I also know, we can be honest again, that there are some of us that have a really tough perception of God. Some of us likely know someone who is really anxious, who's, who's really got a grudge against God, who is upset about God, who does not like who this God is or do, does not like who they think this God is. And I've heard it from other people. I've heard it like people who've said, well, we're not, we're not really going to talk about Old Testament God, are we? Because Old Testament God is mean. 
and Old Testament God is vicious, and Old Testament God is spiteful. We're not going to talk about that God. I don't want that God in my life. Let's just talk about Jesus, because Jesus just loved everybody. I've heard that. And sometimes we don't really want to approach God because we don't want to look at who he uniquely is. And so what do we say to people like that? What do we say if we're the ones having those thoughts? I think we see where the psalmist moves and we praise God not only for who he uniquely is, but we praise him for how he has uniquely worked. And we see that. We see that in in the remainder of this, this psalm. He raises the poor from the dirt and the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap and he seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, Yahweh. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase dirt poor. My dad said it often. This is where they got it from. He, the poor from the dust, like you can't even afford dirt. This is the people who have the poorest of the poor. And in those times, in the Bible writers experienced the people who were poor were considered lazy or cursed. And what do we think about people who are lazy and cursed? Even the best of us, don't we look down on them? That's what society does for these people. They look down on them. And the needy in the ash heap, this might be referring to mourning because sometimes ashes refer to mourning. But in this text, I think in this context, it's more referring to someone who's being sorry for their sin. The needy from the ash heap, they're laying there, they're realizing, you know what, I made a mistake, there's nothing else I can do, I'm sitting in these ashes, I'm trying to say I'm sorry to God, and what do we do with sinners? I think we look down on them too. Society certainly does. They look, we're looked down upon. So he's saying, these two people, the poor and the needy, these sinners, they are looked down upon. And then, I don't know if I've ever met someone more lonely and more unsettled, no peace, no, a discontented woman than someone who longs to have a child and can't. And you were considered an outcast if you couldn't have children at that time. And so this psalmist is saying, think about how, who this God is. Think about how he's uniquely worked. All these people are looked down upon in society. And this is saying, this God, even though he's the one true God, even though he is so high, he's not a God who's far off. And he's certainly not a God who is disinterested or uninterested or uninvolved in our lives. No, this is a God who meets us in the toughest, darkest, loneliest places of our life. And if you're in one of those dark, tough, hard, maybe even hopeless places, the Bible assures us that this God, Yahweh, is close. Now, he may not feel close, but God says, the the word says that he is close. Not only is he close, it says that he lifts them to a place of royalty. Did you catch that? He seats them with the princes, the princes of his people. This is royalty. This is chosen people. 
And wouldn't that be great? And is this it? Is this why we gather? Is it just about praising God for who he uniquely is and praising God for how he's uniquely worked? I'd say that's a lot of it. But I'd say if that's all it is, then we've missed a big part of the remainder of this. Think about these people that are looked down upon, the outcasts, the oppressed, the outsiders. He brings them to this place of honor. Now, to really, really figure that out, we've got to go to Second, uh, Second Peter. No, First Peter two. First Peter two. He's tapping into this idea, how God, who God uniquely is, how He's uniquely worked. But we can't stop there. We have to hit the third reason, the third part of this, of why we gather together, and it's it's located. I think it's nested right in this First Peter two. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous or wonderful light. Okay, if, if you're paying attention, if I haven't lost you yet, then um, you probably recognized a couple phrases from the first 15 minutes of what we've been talking about. One, um, Declare the praises of him. We praise God for who he uniquely is, right? Right? You caught that? And then this out of darkness, these dark, lonely places, because he lifts the people out of these dark places. So those two phrases you probably caught, but if you, if you don't know your Bible really well, or if you're not Jewish, then you probably missed the first part and went, huh? What are all those phrases? I mean, they were cool, but I don't really understand it. The chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. What do those mean? Well, those come from Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, uh, we hear about a guy named Moses. We hear about a group of people called the Israelites. And they're on a journey God's people had been formed from this promise from one man, Abraham, who has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes, which become the nation of Israel, and they become enslaved in Egypt. Okay, that's going to be key. And God calls them out of Egypt. He doesn't just call them out. He actually rescues them. He sends plagues and signs and miracles on the people of uh, Israel and on the people of Egypt, and he pulls them out, and then they end up in this hard place, and he splits open a sea, and they cross through, and they're on this desert. They're coming through this desert, and they come to this desert called the Desert of Sinai, and they come to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and they're in this place in the desert, but they're out of slavery. Now, they, they might be dirt poor, but they're out of slavery. And I've been spending a lot of time in books like Half the Sky and um, Reading and Following International Justice Mission. And those are places that are really concerned with modern-day slavery and trafficking and human trafficking. And I, I haven't been dirt poor. I haven't been unable to have children. But I have to believe that being dirt poor and, and being childless is better than being enslaved. And these people are rescued from slavery. They are not oppressed anymore. 
And they are in this place of freedom with this God who appears to them in a cloud by day and in a fire by night, and he's providing for them. And he brings them to this mountain, it says in Exodus, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. The writer's writing several times about the desert of Sinai and the desert of Sinai and the mountain, and he wants them to know how important and specific this place is. We pick it up in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Same thing. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And this is like, in Hebrew, this is a place of intimacy. This is like a bride and a groom going into their, their chamber for the first night. Okay? How I brought you to myself, how I carried you on eagles' wings. Now, if you obey me fully... And keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the people. This is what Peter's tapping. Peter's hitting this because all these people at this time that he's writing, most of them would have been Jewish. They would know this story. They would know this story so well because right after this story come the Ten Commandments. This is huge for them, and this is huge for us. This isn't just a big deal because, because the Christians in Rome at the time that Peter is writing about First, uh, First Peter, they are, they are under the oppression of an emperor named Nero, and Nero hates Christians, to say it lightly, uh, tradition tells us that, that Nero burned the whole city, and coincidentally, uh, he is, his palaces and his courts were unscathed by the fire, and then really good friend and advisor, his stuff was unscathed, everything else was burned. He wanted to blame it on the Jews because he just didn't like those, but his wife was kind of sympathetic to the Jews, so he went, oh, that little sect of the Jewish faith called Christians, they don't have a lot of support. We'll blame it on them. They are hated hated. They are flogged. They are beaten. They are put on torches and used as light posts. If that's not too graphic, if it is, I'm so sorry. Um, This is not a good place to be. They can't even gather for worship to talk about praise God for who he uniquely is and tell of how he has uniquely worked because they could be beaten, flogged, burned, But he's tapping into this because it's the story. It's not just a story. Exodus is telling the story. God chose Israel to be. Sorry. God chose Israel to be this beacon of light to the nations. To tell the whole world what it meant to have a relationship with God. To be holy, a holy nation. Holy meaning special, meaning Set apart, meaning different, meaning called out. This is who they were to be. Not a nation that's separated by physical walls, but a, but a kingdom with a different king. That's what a nation means. And, and God calls them to be a group, a kingdom, royalty, of priests. Now, if you come from a Catholic background, 
or you're familiar with the Catholic background, then you know that a priest is someone who mediates between you and God. You don't just go confess your sin. You go to the priest to confess your sin, and then they'll take that to God. They represent the people before God, and they represent God before the people. That's the same thing in here. And God's purpose was that these people, these chosen people, would represent humanity before God and God before humanity. This nation was to represent all of the world, not just their little club. This is huge, because what's the goal? The goal is that, that, that priests have two tasks, worship and mission. Worship to praise God for who he uniquely is and how he's uniquely worked. And mission to declare the praises of his people who've called you out of darkness and into that glorious light. And this is the thing that they fail at every time. They fail at worship and they fail at mission. Israel did not do what they were supposed to do. They didn't care about or pray for or serve or proclaim who God is. They didn't praise him for what he's done. They didn't call people out of darkness and into this glorious light. They failed at the mission. They failed to join in God's unique plan. Not just who he uniquely is, not just how he uniquely worked, but they failed to join him in his unique plan. But you, First Peter says, but you are chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare his praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful life. So why would Peter, why would Peter pick that? Why would he, he tap into a failure story? I think I already gave you the answer. Because that story is the story. Think about it. Jesus comes on the scene to join in God's unique plan. And Jesus, after he's born, there's a, a bad king. It's not as bad as Nero, but Herod's not good. So where do they go? They escape. Where do they escape to? Egypt. Why? Why? Because that story is the story. Because everyone's enslaved in Egypt somewhere. Whether it's your sin or your parents' sin or your situation, everyone's got slavery in Egypt. And everyone needs to escape Everyone needs to be rescued, and Jesus comes out of Egypt. Why? Because when Israel came out of Egypt, they failed. They failed at worship, and they failed at mission. But Jesus, he comes out of Egypt, and he succeeds. He fulfills. He worships. He does mission. He cares about. He serves. He goes. He represents the people, not just the people of Israel. All of humanity. Certainly there are times in the Gospels where Jesus says, no, I've come for the chosen people that come for the Jews. And even a woman who's not Jewish says, well, even a dog can eat the scraps off the master's table. And he says, I've never seen faith like this woman, not in all of Israel. Jesus certainly wasn't exclusive. He was sent on a mission. He was sent to join God's unique mission. If you don't believe me, read John and think about how many times, look at how many times it says sent. God sent Jesus on this unique mission to join in that story because that story is the story. And where does he go as this priest? Who does he spend the most time with? Who is he highlighting? Well, we could go to Luke. Luke certainly has an agenda. He writes about people who are lost, who are lonely, who are oppressed, who are outcasts, who are outsiders. And he spends all his time talking about how Jesus goes to those people. Why? 
because that story is the story. Because Jesus had to not just be a person, he had to be Israel. He had to do what God asked Israel to do and to be. Why? Because they failed at it, and Jesus needed to succeed at it. And so he goes to the oppressed and the outsiders because that's the story. Because Jesus is the true priest who represents the people, all the people of the world, to God and God to all the people. Amen. That's right. And he challenges his followers to join in his unique plan. That's why Peter taps this. That's why he hits it. That's why it's so huge because we are a continuation of that story. And he tells the people, he says, go and ask people to follow you as you follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Matthew 28, um, 18 through 20. Go, declare and demonstrate this kingdom. This kingdom where the king, Jesus, not Caesar, not the president, not somebody else, where Jesus is king, and anyone in his kingdom is those who declare allegiance to that king. We're going to declare and demonstrate that kingdom, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promises. Like all the way back to Genesis 12 and Exodus 19 and 1 Samuel 7, 16. Right, Matt? Yeah? Okay. 2 Samuel 7, 16? Where, yeah, 2 Samuel 7, 16. God's unconditional promise to King David. King David, who's the forerunner to Jesus. This is the story. And he asks us to come into it Worship and mission. This is why we gather. Because it's not about us. And I wish I could say that it's open to everyone. And it kind of is, which sounds really universalist. But there's a condition, too, to that universalism that's very exclusive. Jesus says, you've got to choose to put your allegiance into this king I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's very universal and yet very exclusive. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. This is the mission. I am who God uniquely is, Jesus says. I have worked how God has uniquely worked, and I have completed God's unique plan, and you can be a part of that. Now, we are not beaten we're flogged, we're burned in our day and age, at least here. There are many followers of Jesus around the world who still are, but we are not. However, I think some of us are beaten and flogged by apathy. And we forget this mission. We forget to worship God for who he uniquely is. I sure forgot it at 8.58 this morning. We forget to worship God for how he has uniquely worked. That he is the one true God. That there is no other God like our God. That we can have the coolest gadgets and the most amazing opportunities in this country to succeed and we will never find fulfillment outside of this one true God and how he has uniquely worked. And he calls us into that mission that is anything but apathetic. So the church then, I think, is God's reformed people. Chosen people. 
a kingdom of priests, a holy group, not to be exclusive, but to represent God before all of humanity and all of humanity before God. To belong to God in this worship and mission. What do you do with that? Where do you go with that? Where does the Holy Spirit take you? Are you in a place where you've been flogged and beaten by apathy? Where you've forgotten who God is and who he uniquely is and how he's uniquely worked? Have you forgotten this mission that he calls us to? Have you forgotten how he's brought you out of darkness and into his glorious light? If you've forgotten that, can we just have a moment? Can you just picture what your life would be like without Jesus? I don't want to get all emotional on you, and, but I thought about that this week as I prepared. And I'd still be a nice guy, but I'd be really selfish. I'd be really chasing after things that would never, never give me fulfillment. It would be a road that would lead to death without Jesus. As much as I want to try and soft sell that, as much as I'd love to just say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could all be nice people? That is the reality. If you are in a place where you've forgotten, can I just ask you to talk to the Holy Spirit about what it would be like if you didn't have Jesus? Where would the darkness take you? And let's be honest, because in a room this size, there will be people that have been beaten and flogged by bad church or church power or church division or church politics or just bad stuff. And I can't ask for forgiveness on behalf of those things but I can say, did they mess up? And can you, can you forgive them, whoever those are? Can you look at Jesus and can you look at his mission? And can you say, what does it mean to join God's first, best, and only plan? The church in the world being the representatives of God before humanity. What is that going to look like if we get it? But you are a chosen people. You and I, we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy people, a kingdom of priests, a people belonging to God, that we might declare his praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Can we stand and do that now? Let me pray for us. God, as we sing and, and read scripture now and respond to who you are uniquely and how you have uniquely worked, I pray that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, about what it is that we need to hear and how we need to respond, God, because you have called us out of darkness, those who have trusted you and into a marvelous light. And I pray that we would get that, not in an emotional way, but in a whole experience, whole body way. So speak to us as we as we pray and read and sing. Amen.